You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this edition of our RSAC 365 podcast series. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Casey Zirkus, Senior Content Manager with RSA Conference. And today I'm joined by Gadalia Montoya Weinberg O'Brien, who is the founder and CEO of Dapple Security. Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review us on your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now I would like to ask Adalia to take a moment to introduce herself before we dive right into today's topic. Adalia, over to you. Hi, Casey. Thank you so much for having me today. As you said, I'm the founder and CEO of Dapple Security. Uh, We're a cybersecurity startup focused on digital identity, and I started my career serving as a crypto mathematician for the United States National Security Agency and have worked in the security and data space for almost two decades now. And I guess I would say as a general theme, I just love using technology to create change. I love that. Welcome so much. I'm really happy to have you here with me today. And As a starting point, I was hoping that maybe you could explain to our listeners a little bit about the evolution of your very interesting career. As you mentioned, you started as a mathematician at the NSA, and now you've turned to a cybersecurity startup founder. So how did that happen? Yeah. So as you said, I'm trained as a mathematician, which was a pretty natural fit for starting my career as a crypto mathematician for the federal government. But there's also a general math mindset, I would say, that's very compatible with being a security professional. As a mathematician, I'm trained to look for holes in logic, and I love generalizing and looking for patterns. And those not only help me with any particular security problem, but I also really enjoy being sort of like a macroeconomist and observing broad trends and risk and thinking about how we come together as a security community to address them. And... I'd say another theme in my career is that it's given me a healthy appreciation for privacy. So I actually find myself in a really interesting and exciting time right now because as a security community, we're currently seeing so much risk originating from how we handle digital identity. Uh, And that also happens to have huge privacy implications. So I'm looking forward to digging in with you a bit. Yeah, privacy is definitely front of mind, especially as we're going through the headlines today and, you know, the conversations about surveillance tools and so forth. So uh, definitely very happy to have folks like you who are working on privacy and the implications of our digital identity as part of our community. So you mentioned risks originating from how we handle digital identity. Can you share your perspective on how attacks have evolved from the network to now digital identity? Yeah. So obviously this is going to be a broad generalization, but I did tell you I like to do that. Uh, If we look at the evolution of cyber attacks over time, we can see this sort of evolution, as you said, from First, you know, network-based attacks, which is really how we think of those kind of traditional hacker movies, folks trying to break into the network, and then to more sophisticated endpoint attacks. And by that, I mean, you can think of, you know, exploiting operating system vulnerabilities in those end-user devices. And then now today we see, you know, 80 to 90% of our data breaches occurring from exploiting digital identity. 
that's the space I'm just super interested in because it is so relevant. And to give you some examples of what those attack vectors look like on digital identity, you know, we have, of course, things like offline brute force attacks. And that's when we see, you know, stolen or leaked password files getting um, compromised. And then once those passwords are obtained, you can use bots and credential stuffing to compromise accounts at big scales. Another one is phishing, uh, which is extremely common and often goes with having an attacker in the middle where we're fooling people into willingly handing over their login credentials to bad actors. And I guess lastly, I would say that uh, this is a more targeted and sophisticated attack, but it's impersonation. So, you know, taking stolen or fake knowledge-based data, if, you know, folks have obtained that about you in bits and pieces, uh, that can be obtained through social engineering or even stolen biometrics to overtake someone's digital identity. There's another related attack here that I don't want to neglect as my last point, which is that of creating entirely fake identities. So someone pretending to be a new customer or employee or creating social media accounts where they're basing it on a quote person, but that person does not actually exist in real life. And that synthetic identity piecing right. together different <laughs> different bits of knowledge and biometrics and information to create a whole new person, which is yeah. so tricky. Yeah. So thinking about those vectors, what are the risks? And I guess who is at a greater risk or what determines the potential risk? One thing it's really important to be aware of here is that there's risk at all levels from these identity-based attacks. So thinking from very specific individuals out to the more general, even societal impact. So to be more specific there, yes, these put individuals at heavy risk of financial loss, identity theft, reputational harm if our accounts are hacked. And then that relays over into the enterprise, which are at risk for data breaches, financial fraud, uh, and same thing, reputational harm from being victims of these types of attacks. But there's a really big impact I want to make sure we don't ignore, which is that these identity-based attacks actually have the potential to disrupt some of our societal functions as well. And what I mean by that, for example, is... If you think about it, our access to resources like healthcare and food and other services are often really closely tied to a digital credential, which is definitely true in the U.S., but even more so in other countries like India, who have adopted national biometric IDs. So in that case, lost or stolen digital identities and fraud actually can lead to interrupting access to those crucial services. And another important societal impact that I think of a lot is when fake or curated digital identities are actually used to spread disinformation. And that happens a lot over social media. Yeah. And I'm just kind of thinking through to the ramifications of the synthetic identity fraud that has to be at a tremendous cost to enterprises because there's really no recourse, right? Yeah. Um, it's really hard to ferret out and it's really, these attacks are very sophisticated and often, you know, perpetrated by nation states. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, like I said, something that I think about a lot and hope to address. Yeah. So what are some of the ways that individuals, enterprises and society at large can 
actually mitigate these risks? I am super interested in some of the digital identity technology movements that are happening right now. One reason I find them so interesting is that they they challenge the false paradox that security has to come at the expense of privacy. Uh, I think a lot of these new solutions actually strike a balance of both of those things because of how they're put together. So one of those that I'm super interested in is passwordless technology, which, as its name indicates, aims to migrate us away from reliance on passwords and rely instead on multiple factors, which could be a hardware device like your phone um, and add that to a biometric reading, for example. Modern technologies that use passwordless are often um, implemented with public key cryptography. And one of the really common ones right now is the FIDO2 standards, which became a worldwide web consortium recommendation in, in 2019. So new, but really taking on a lot of momentum. Another interesting trend I see in this space is decentralized identity. And there's a related construct to that, self-sovereign identity. These architectures move away from centrally storing and authenticating digital credentials. And instead, you're often storing those in a distributed location, such as a blockchain. And most importantly, it puts users in control of exactly what bits of their identity are shared and when and with whom. Lastly, I guess I would bring up reusable identity, which is a concept of having a portable, verified digital identity that we can reuse rather than having to re-register with every new service we encounter. So if that sounds a bit abstract, you could think of it in a crude sense, like a digital version of using your driver's license or passport everywhere, instead of having to carry around a loyalty card and a library card and an insurance card for all of the services that you're accessing. And it's also worth noting that reusable identity is often paired with a decentralized identity architecture. So a lot of those things that I just mentioned will fit together in a security um, and identity architecture. So there's a ton of really interesting security and privacy features of those systems I just mentioned that we could probably talk all day about if we're not careful. Uh, But I'll just point out one feature that is really important, which is that all of these systems move away from relying on a shared secret. And what I mean by that is, you know, think of using a password or even an SMS code on your phone to log in where I have a secret, then you as the service provider have that same secret. And in order to let me in, you check to see if the two secrets match. And that one notion, the shared secret is responsible for so many vulnerabilities. So getting rid of it has a large security and privacy impact. Huh. That's interesting because when you were explaining those different ways to mitigate risk, I was thinking about it feels to me sort of alarming the the concept of reusable identity mm-hmm. that to have so many things linked to one piece of information and have that be the source of truth to so many different providers feels like oh gosh doesn't that create a bigger risk <laughs> um that you know there there's so much sort of interwovenness in that reusable identity yes and, absolutely And these are, these are important things to think about, which is when we're solving one problem, are we opening up others? Yeah. And so that was my next question for you. Like, you know, technology is great when it works, but sometimes adding in this one solution can 
alter even the efficacy of another. So can you talk about some of the ways that new technical solutions that are intended to address one risk can actually open up new unanticipated risks? And what do we do about that? Yeah, I mean, that is the constant cycle of being security practitioners, right? We close a door, but then a window opens and new attack vectors emerge and sometimes old ones come back around. So with every new security solution, we do have to be really careful not to just rest on our laurels and constantly be asking ourselves, what else are we missing? What have we not considered in the new landscape? And just to get your imagination going, here's a few things I'm thinking about with these new digital identity solutions, in addition to the one that you just mentioned, Casey. Uh, One is, how do we know that the real person who's logging in is the right person? And this is inherently a tough and age-old problem because we're trying to bridge the digital and physical worlds. And so things like biometrics are often proposed, which can really be helpful, but that still doesn't guarantee this kind of tie between the person and the digital identity. Think of how many people enroll their partners on their smartphone, for example. So does having possession of that phone really guarantee that that's me? Another thing to think about with biometrics is a stolen or spoofed biometric input. So getting someone's face off of social media and AI is making this impersonation even easier, unfortunately. Um, And then, um, you know, for the sake of imagination, again, another area I want to highlight is the potential for side channel attacks when we think about digital identity. So we can have the most solid digital identity system protecting our front door, which is really what we're doing with digital identity, right, is trying to make sure that the people coming in that front door are who they say they are. But what if we forgot about a side door? So to bring this back down to earth for a sec, with an application, if your application security itself is weak, then that's where the adversary is going to go for an attack, no matter how amazing your authentication is preventing um, them from fraud at that front door. So I'll close by reminding us always to be open-minded and think critically about those unanticipated risks, as you said. Yeah. And that layered approach to security sounds like it's critically important here. Security in depth is the mantra. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Kadalia, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to hear the work being done to protect privacy and deter fraudsters and scammers from compromising our digital identities. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. To find products and solutions related to fraud protection and privacy, we invite you to visit rsaconference.com forward slash marketplace. Here you'll find an entire ecosystem of cybersecurity vendors and service providers who can assist with your specific needs. And please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year round. Thanks again.